0: this evening, we land on his peace, which just feels so relevant in the face of coronavirus. But also, I think when these things happen, I think it wakes us up to the stuff that is going on in our world. We live in a time of war and rumour of war and of war within ourselves, all these different tensions that we live amongst. And we cope, I think, amidst that in some ways. But also these things you might find wake up fear in you that you didn't realize was there and um, does things like that. So it's really um, a great privilege. Uh, I say that it's a great privilege, but also a responsibility to preach into peace tonight. But I am just like always super excited because uh, the opportunity to share is always the opportunity to like surrender, to allow God to do what he wants to do. This is not about what I want to do. This is about uh, what he wants to do this evening and that he's already at work. So um, I'm just going to read this little passage from John 14 uh, to kind of set our scene in the midst of the kind of the series that we're in. And, uh, and then we'll pray and then I'll kind of unpack a few things uh, that I think will just help us uh, get into what it means to uh, receive from Jesus peace. Uh, But also in that broader sense of like, what do we do as people who follow Jesus or who are thinking about, is this Jesus worth following? Like, what does he really offer us? And what are we expecting from that? What's different about him? Uh, And maybe Jesus wants to wake us up afresh today uh, to his realities and to what he's able to do in that. Uh, This is John 14, and we're going to read from uh, verse 19 to verse 29. Verse 29. Uh, Simon preached uh, last week on his pattern, uh, which was from John 13. And if you were there, you'll remember that Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. In John's gospel, this is where the kind of last supper is had. This is where uh, the moment before Jesus begins, uh, gets kind of arrested and taken into trial, before he then um, gets crucified, this is like the shadow of all of that. There's an amazing psalm, Psalm 23, that has this verse, um, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. This is the moment for Jesus. He's in the valley of the shadow of death right now. And he's there with his closest kind of friends, but these guys were his apprentices. So they were all there uh, in this this space that Jesus had created in order to give them and model to them stuff that he wasn't going to be able to do in the same way Uh, from his crucifixion onwards, but he was going to carry on just in a different way, as you'll find out. But that's not my part of the series tonight. That's going to be the coming weeks, Uh, so I'm not going to spoil all of that. Uh, So we arrive here. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. We're still in the same room. He's been sharing a load of different stuff, and then he says this. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, who's the one who betrays Jesus, he's already left the room, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So this is the context uh, in which this verse that I'm going to focus on uh, gets spoken by Jesus. So I'm going to focus on this verse, uh, which is the verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. But it is in this context of Jesus really downloading a load of stuff for the disciples. Now, uh, it was half-term in the, in the past. And, uh, um, and me and Carrie and the kids, uh, I have two kids, Freya, who's six, about to be seven, very important fact there, um, and uh, Seth, who's five. We went away for summer half-term and uh, which was really great to be able to get away as a family, and brilliantly, kind of in preceding weeks, some friends of ours who live in Salford, uh, which is uh, next to Manchester, um, it's in the north, anybody know where the north of England is? Oh yeah, good, there's some people in here, yeah, yeah. Um, they texted like a group that were in, a WhatsApp group of old friends, and they'd said, anybody going away for half-term, can we nick your house? And uh, so we'd said, oh yeah, great, come to London. You can stay at ours while we go away. So really great. They were coming down and uh, their daughter is my goddaughter. So it was really nice to see them for, for a lunch before we headed off kind of to have our holiday and then leave them at ours in order for them to have a nice time in London. And uh, it was one of those, I don't know if you've ever had to do this, but the week preceding as in the busyness of kind of life, Carrie and I began there was this A4 piece of paper in our kitchen as we began to write down the things that we thought they might need to know about being in our, like, little maisonette. Um, which is fine. I mean, I, like, that's a practical thing to do, isn't it? But it starts like that, and then it gets a bit ludicrous because you really bega- I began to really overthink what is it going to be like for them to live in our... Maisonette, just for f- like three nights, four days, um, and need to do all these different things. And I started thinking up all of the most ludicrous things they might need to know. I was drawing pictures of the remote control in order to like show them because, you know, obviously now Netflix is like a basic human need in the, the Western world. Um, so, so like drawing all these intricate things of how they would operate different things. Uh, obviously the central heating, deeply important. Carrie's like, it's fine it's like they're not going to need the central heat. No, they need to know how to use that. It could be very difficult. Um, they need to know. it's not very intuitive, uh, all this different stuff. I was totally overthinking what they would need. But we had compiled this great list of things and then they came for lunch. And then I kind of, again, in my eagerness, uh, I had kind of like took Phil, my mate, to the side and was like, I'm just going to give you a little tour around the maisonette. Um, so that I can just point out lots of different things, you know, and I classically did the overshare thing like i showed him the basic things he needed to know, you know where the taps were um, and where the toilet was. And then I went into like the history of it as well. And, oh, and you'll find, yeah, this draws a bit funny. So just don't worry. You can give that a kick and, uh, you know, all those different things. Anyway, it was a bit hilarious. With the disciples, Jesus has gone into a little bit of a mode here in John's gospel. He's doing a total download because he's about to leave and he wants the disciples to have every piece of information they need, every little thing that they need in order that they might begin to fill the space that he is leaving. Jesus is giving them things that obviously are way more sophisticated than like the instructions to the central heating and how the remote control works. But he is giving them these things which are like they are essential for the long haul. They're not just things so that they can cope with his death, which is coming, although they are that, but they are things which will serve the disciples for the years and actually for the generations to come. So Simon spoke last week and he talked about how we would be this community, the bride of Christ, the church of God, the followers of Jesus, the movement that Jesus started, how we would be the people who are defined and known by the way that we love each other. Key download for Jesus to his disciples. This is something you need to know. And isn't it amazing that we have this? That like Jesus uh, is, was able to communicate these things and the, uh, the writer in John's gospel here, that John was able to take down these things and be able to communicate them to us that we might carry on that legacy that Jesus uh, has commissioned us into. Well, peace is one of those things. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. The word for peace is, is an amazing word, and some of you will know this already. You'll be thinking, oh, peace. Oh, I know he's going to go to these different places with this word peace. It's amazing. It means so much more than just, you know. Um, and you're right. It is an amazing word. The Greek, which is the original like language that the New Testament was written in, the Greek word for peace is "irene." Uh, Or, if you've studied Greek more than I have, it's probably pronounced differently, but that's my standard. So, Irini will just say that. Um, And it is linked to uh, the Hebrew word, which is what all the Old Testament is written in. This Hebrew word, uh, which is like a major kind of piece uh, of the theological understanding, and in fact, the expectation of the whole swathe of the Jewish scripture through the Old Testament into the culmination with Jesus as he comes and uh, continues the law and the prophets and takes it to another level and Christianity is born. And for the Jews, it was Shalom. Anybody heard that word before, Shalom? Yeah, a few different people, yeah, if you're vintage enough, you'll have sung it probably uh, through the certain era, I certainly remember, I mean, probably my great-grandfather or something like that singing it, Uh, no, I remember singing it as a kid with parents in church, that kind of thing, and uh, this, this word is amazing, shalom, this is not just peace as in the absence of trouble, this has a far greater meaning than just that. Shalom is everything that makes for our highest good. It is whole well-being. This is what one theologian says. I want to read it so that I get it right. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So Jesus, right in the midst of the shadow of what is to come at the cross, after he has enacted the kind of leadership that he wants the disciples to perpetuate, this servant leadership, servant enough to wash their feet, after he's articulated that they will be a people defined by love, he gives them a gift. And this gift that he gives is peace. And this gift is so rich and so deep. It is the gift that the world is still crying out for, isn't it? We hear these words, I hear them in lots of different spheres now, flourishing, wholeness, uh, all of these different things, well-being, and absolutely right, we need to be people, we are people, I think, who hunger and thirst after these things. And here, in some way, Jesus is beginning to try and reveal to the disciples that in him, They can find these things. They can flourish. They can find wholeness. They can be made whole. It's really interesting that the verbs Jesus used here are like he uses two different ones. Peace I leave with you is the first one and then peace I give to you. This verb to leave is really, uh, I kind of loved finding out more about it uh, because it sounds just kind of like very nice, doesn't it? Peace, I leave with you. I've left it on the side. It's just next to the refrigerator. Um, You know, just pick it up when you need it kind of thing. But that's not what it means. It has in it the idea of throwing. Jesus at this point, uh, in the midst of downloading all these things to the disciples, says, peace, I throw at you. Peace, I throw at you. But in it as well, the amazing twist, of course, from Jesus, it doesn't mean just that. It also means, peace I throw you out with. And not in a kind of rubbish way, like it has no negative connotation in that way, but it has this movement sense. I thrust you out. I cast you out with peace, by peace. Like, has anybody ever felt in situations where they needed someone to chuck them some peace? Like, give me some peace here, please. And I don't just mean peace as in the way that we define it in the world, you know. In the world, sometimes it is so the default. Peace is the absence of trouble. Peace is escaping what is stressing us out. Peace is the thing that we have the victory in. And it can mean those things, but I don't think that's good enough for us to just default to those things. As Christians, it is not okay for us to say peace is just the victory over all of this stuff. Because the victory has been won by Jesus, but there is still a battle going on and it will not be fully kind of finished until Jesus comes back again. We don't just need promises that get fulfilled in the future. We need and should ask of God for the things that will help us live out this life now in the face of all of the troubles that we see. This is the kind of peace that Jesus offers us. And he says, peace I give to you. Ah, oh, this, this verb is amazing because underneath it is the sense of authorship. Jesus is the author of the peace that he is giving. In the midst of John's gospel, that comes out of this intimate articulation of the life of the Trinity of God. Jesus is going on and on about, I am in the Father, and the Father is me, and if you are in me, then you are in the Father, and you know the Father, and it feels very complex sometimes. It can be almost claustrophobic for people reading John's gospel because of the way in which John will not budge an inch uh, to to give us room uh, when he talks about the relationship between Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are one. Because there is no room between them. The only room that there is in the Godhead, in the Trinity, is the room that Jesus has made so that we might step into the intimacy, the flourishing, the well-being, and the peace of that relationship this is the gospel. (laughs) And I feel it, right? We need the Holy Spirit to keep us in these places so that we are reminded in the face of a world which does not know what good news is, we have to be a people who not fight uh, with violence, but who fight with the peace, with the gift that God has given us. This is the good news, that Jesus has made a way for us to know the Father And to know that we are human beings made in the image of God. And I think it's really important that we're really frank about the state that the world is in. Not because we need to uh, be like um, people who promote fear. Although we encounter fear, right? Fear is real. It's, it's It's a human thing to become afraid of things. And for different ones of us, we get fearful about different things at different times but I think it serves to say that the world is troubled inwardly and outwardly that we know what it means to experience trouble on some level and there may always be other people or there will always be other people who have uh, experienced that and suffered that to a greater level than us but this is close to our door And I think that we need desperately to grab hold of the peace that Jesus is throwing, not just to those disciples in that upper room, but even all the way to us today. There's one stream of kind of theological thinking around peace uh, that is called the peace of conquest, meaning that Jesus overcomes those things just like we were singing and it says this, this is the kind of peace where no experience can take it from us. No sorrow, no danger, no suffering. This peace is independent of outside circumstances. These are the gifts that we need. Gifts that don't mean that we just see things through rose-tinted glasses or that we feel the need to run away all the time. But the things that allow us to stand and to Act and to see Jesus' ministry outworked even in the face of these things which hurt and which trouble us and which can be scary. Uh, this amazing uh, Japanese theologian who Nikki Wong plugged me into this week. He shared a thought in our staff meeting, which was just amazing. And so I did what all good um, uh, pastors do. Um, I didn't say, oh yeah, I know about that uh, theologian. I was like, oh, I have no idea. Let me try and see if there's a book on offer and I can get that book and see if it's right to get it. So I went straight out and uh, started reading about this amazing guy, Kosuke Kayama, who some of you may know of, great uh, Japanese theologian. And he says this, there is a vast difference between happy ending religion and trust and faith. We are called to go beyond protection from danger religion and happy ending religion. We are called to trust in God. Jesus calls us to trust him. In the face of all of this, to trust him. No matter how intimate the trouble is that you have experienced, uh, even if it's that only you know about what you have experienced. Uh, Jesus calls us to trust him. You know, one in four of us this year would experience some kind of mental health issue. You know, this is, this is just stuff that is going on. Uh, and we are called in that to trust Jesus. Not out of our own strength, not because it's easy not because it's easy to just wrap our thoughts around that. We've been doing this mental health first aid training uh, as staff and um, this last two weeks, and it's been incredible. It's been, like, heartbreaking at times because you begin to see the picture uh, of what it means to deal with some of these mental health issues uh, that, for some of us, we haven't experienced some of them. And then even for me, like, with some of them, I was like, oh, my word, this is really hard. I'm, like, trying to learn how to act well for other people Whilst in some ways, this is just really speaking into things that I have and am dealing with in my own like experience with mental health. And yet this is what we need to do to stand in the tension that while God is healing me, he might also want to use me to help other people be, be saved, be healed, be delivered from the trouble uh, that they are in. But also, of course, we have this outward stuff. And in the face of all of this stuff going on around the world, you know, another million refugees leaving, fleeing from Syria, and the reality of war and of persecution going on, uh, religious, and the way in which we see all of this stuff going on in the world, Jesus calls us to believe in him. And again, not because he offers us some shallow answer to that, but because in him we find the author of peace. You know, in the very root uh, of the word shalom, Hebrew words always have a few different root words that come together to make them. And um, in the root of shalom, the word shalom, there are two other Hebrew words used that it refers to. One of them means it is paid for, and the other means it is paid for in advance. In this Hebrew word, this concept of peace, this shalom, written right in there is the sense that this is a peace that is available because it has been paid for and it has been atoned for. And Jesus, who for us becomes the one who has paid the price so that we don't have to pay it, who saves by giving his own life, greater love has no one than this, then he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, who shed his own blood to atone for his people, that's us, everyone. He is the author of peace because he has paid for it. And at this point, on the eve of his death, he uses a word which points all the way back into the Jewish story the plight of the Jewish people of which he was part. It speaks right into the moment for the disciples who were anxious and didn't know what was about to happen but knew something was coming. And it speaks totally forward through the atonement and the price of the cross to us who are saved too by his work, his peace. Clearly in this passage, Peace again, it's like Jesus doesn't say, and there will be this peace, which if you work really hard for, I will give to you. Or, uh, you know, if you collect enough stamps on your good religion passport, then I'll be able to uh, invite you in. Jesus just gives it freely as a gift. It is so freely given. And it is for us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is available to us even right now. Peace is actually evidence of God. You know, if you've experienced peace in the face of uh, non-peaceful circumstances, you have experienced the evidence of God at work in you. You know, it's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and it's something that we're both kind of we get to receive but also then that we can look for in the world. So first of all I just want us to have a few moments to allow God not to just give us some more head knowledge about peace but to give us an experience of that in our hearts and to allow space for us to ask him for that. This is not something that I can give to you, this is something that he wants to give to you if you want it.